Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted, the Christ Central Festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends, enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom, transforming the world, and reaching nations, making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to this seminar. If you haven't been on uh, the other seminars in this, uh, in this zone, welcome particularly to you. We've had some amazing discussions about immigration, refugees, and asylum on the first day, and then about diversity, racial diversity in churches yesterday with Toppy Colioso. So we've really enjoyed um, having those uh, sessions. And um, I have uh, a good friend and colleague to introduce to you, um, Matt Cameron, who, uh, in a, who I'll introduce in a moment, who's doing the second half of this seminar on welfare. A couple of adverts first before we start. Wherever I go, I'm an, I'm a, I, there's always a commercial side to it. Um, uh, so this seminar s- uh, series is being run by Jubilee Plus, um, which is an organization most of you know about, um, uh, connected closely with Christ Central. We've got a national conference coming up. It's been on the scroller at the front, um, but it's the 29th of October. It's Darlington, Krish Kandaya, 15 partner organizations, probably incredible seminars. This conference is the sixth national conference we've run. They're very rarely in the north of England. So please take your opportunity, 29th of October. There's a price break somewhere in the middle of September. So I encourage you to pick up that little uh, blue card. There's one in your uh, welcome pack as well. Get online and book into our conference. Um, uh, I co-wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. Some of you are familiar with it. It's at the bookstall. I think it's seven pounds. Uh, This deals with some interesting cultural issues which relate to welfare in terms of how we view people and how we sometimes make value judgments that divide them into different categories. There's a bit on the media, a bit on theology, a bit on church life, attitudes, a bit on history, all sorts of things in there. So I recommend you, uh, if you're interested, do have a look at The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. Uh, which is uh, coming up then uh, in the bookstore. People still coming in, so I'll just give a moment for people to settle. Welcome. People even sitting on the front row. That's always a sign that revival is imminent. Um, So that's great. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll get started now. So, So welcome to this seminar. The welfare system is... Uh, right at the heart of a major cultural debate that's going on in the UK at the moment, uh, uh, in in which the churches are heavily involved. And so what I'm going to do in the first half of the seminar is to talk to you a little bit about the historical background. Um, How did the welfare system develop in the UK? Obviously, it's a huge topic. I'm just going to do a couple of bullet points. There'll be a lot of things we won't have time to say. Then I'm going to try and provide you with a few overall biblical insights that connect with the questions raised by the issue of welfare. Because 
for us as Christians and one of our ministries in Jubilee Plus is try and connect Scripture, the broad narrative, principles, covenants, and purposes of God to issues that don't immediately seem connected. And so we're going to do a little bit of that, a bit of Q&A on that, and then I'll hand over to Matt, who's going to tell you a lot of things from kind of ground level uh, in terms of what's going on uh, in the welfare system. Well, here's a simple definition. Um, uh, what are we talking about? What does welfare really mean? Sometimes it's used as a pejorative word, a politically loaded word, but it basically means providing a minimal level of social support for those citizens without sufficient current means of support. It's a very simple, generic definition. Welfare, we, that the uh, desire or even the obligation to provide uh, a basic level of support for people who do not have that notice current means of support at that particular time. Obviously, that's a variable factor for people. So that's what we're talking about in terms of a general definition. But I find it really helpful. And by the way, I used to be a history teacher, so I always talk historically. That's just the way I think. But it's so helpful, I think, in all sorts of different areas. I like to think of some of the journey of the, of, of, uh, the United Kingdom towards our, our present situation. Some of it's in the book, actually. You can look at the historical section there. But a real early marker was in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, about 1601, just before she died. There was an introduction of what we, we call, used to call the poor law. And by the, this was a means of the government trying to say, what do we do with the people who are destitute? And so what they did was they allowed the magistrates to collect local taxes and through the parish system make distribution to people who, in, who were poor. That was the first corporate attempt, really, in our history to do something about it. It was very inefficient, it was very corrupt, it was very patchy, it was very problematical, but that's what they did. Now, in the 19th century, in 1834, uh, was the so-called New Poor Law, which took it away from the parish system um, and instituted a system which we now know as the workhouse system. Do you remember Charles Dickens and Oliver Twist and all that sort of stuff? Well, that's all about this particular era of history, where people who were destitute were told they needed to register and become resident at these uh, 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 workhouses where they uh, experienced tough treatment, tough standard of living, very, very minimal support, um, and that was the environment. And it was one of the philosophical things behind it was to make it look relatively unattractive so that people didn't end up there. But you can imagine the complexities that that developed. And the poor law system continued for a long time. But another thing that happened in the 19th century, which is often forgotten, this very, very important foundation to our culture, is that we developed in Britain what are called mutuals or friendly societies, which were organizations developed to provide support for people based on either a locality, a vocation or job, or a particular social need. So there might have been, for example, the Newark Friendly Society or an Agricultural Friendly Society. And uh, it's estimated that at the height of the Friendly Movement, there were over 14,000 Friendly Societies in Great Britain with millions of people involved in them. And what were they? They were a contributory system. 
you provide a very small contribution on a regular basis and the friendly society will support you in certain designated needs that you may have medical needs, health needs, childbirth, the death of a relative, payment of the funeral, unemployment support, whatever it might be. And so in British culture, friendly societies were a very, very fundamental part of how welfare was provided. But notice this wasn't central government. This was philanthropy, many Christians involved in this movement and many other philanthropic people and businesses and and owners of uh, businesses and so forth. So this is very interesting um, background. And the principle was contributory. You make a contribution and something comes back to you. Don't forget that. We're coming back to that in a minute. Contributory. Then the liberal government before the First World War uh, with... um, with David Lloyd George and other leaders, um, uh, started some social reforms, which we won't go into in detail, but they were beginning to look at pensions, labor exchanges, basic unemployment rights, basic health issues, uh, not generically. And they, they based the provision they were providing on the friendly societies. They actually used them as the means of, uh, of, of providing some of these. But then we come in the 1940s, after the Second World War, to the what we now know as the foundation of the welfare state. And this is a, a central moment, but what I wanted to say by what I've said so far is that it didn't all just start with a big bang at that point. There were lots of things behind it. So the Labour politicians and uh, Beveridge, who wrote a famous report um, that informed the uh, government of Clement Attlee, Um, They were aware of what the liberals had done and they were very interested in what the friendly societies and the mutuals had done and they were trying to work out how we make this not just patchy uh, and for those who were involved that was fine, for those who weren't there was nothing. They were trying to get a generic system. So they were moving the balance of welfare away from private organizations into the public domain. And so this is what we now know as the welfare state. This is the foundation for the culture that we are um, very familiar with. The National Insurance Act of 1946, contributory state pension for everybody, uh, the National Health Act, which uh, started the National Health Service. But what they basically did was that they gathered together all the existing hospitals and clinics and medical facilities, many of which were associated with friendly societies, incidentally, many of whom had their own doctors that they employed, and they gathered them all together and created a generic system with the idea the state will become the sponsor. And what the state can do is to take patchy welfare and make it generic welfare so nobody misses out. From the cradle to the grave, that was their motto, there will be welfare across our country. Now, what I'm trying to do to to illustrate this history, see, can you see the development, different things that are going on? And we've got the contributory principle, but we also have a redistribution principle. So one form of welfare is to say we take taxation and we'll redistribute it. We take it from the richer people and we give it to the poorer people. That's the redistribution principle. The contribution principle is that you make a contribution and you get a benefit back. And much of the present debate is about the clash or the balance between those two principles. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then more recently, there's a huge number of developments in between these which we haven't got time to go into, but more recently there's been a change of tack in welfare since the coalition government of 2010 and the current government, um, which is 
uh, largely uh, entitled Welfare Reform, and that's become a stormy and controversial area in public debate and political debate, as in the light of austerity or in the light of economic problems that came principally out of the financial crash of 2008, um, the welfare budget has been reevaluated at a very, very fundamental level. So they've gone, decided to think, well, how do, we, how do we deal with all these historical trends? What do we actually make of them? How are we going to restructure the whole thing that seems to have been uh, growing and growing? And so the idea is to reduce the budget, um, to, make it, to make sure that people don't get more on welfare than they do in work, to simplify the system and to reduce welfare dependency. These are some of the things that the government have been saying they want to do. And, of course, they've been changing benefits, introducing things like universal uh, credit, uh, uh, which I think Matt will probably talk about. I could comment on it, but I'll leave it to him. So there are lots of changes going on right now, and, and churches have got engaged because at the same time as there's been this great uh, effort at reform, as a result of the financial crash, the, the church's engagement with welfare has escalated astronomically. Suddenly, the church is a, an active, engaged party in the welfare discussion through the food bank movement primarily and other initiatives. It is now a hot topic for Christians. And the reason for that is that the competency of the state, which was building up from particularly the Labour government of the 1940s right the way through to the beginning of this century, suddenly that competence is under question. In fact, is impossible to sustain financially. And so there's a rethinking. The churches were heavily involved in the time of the Elizabethan Poor Law. They provided chaplaincy and support for residents in workhouses. They were often linked to friendly societies. And then they gradually disappeared out of the system as the state's competence grew. And now the whole map is being redrawn. And so welfare becomes a top issue for Christians to think about. Very interesting. I suggest to you four challenges. Number one, how do you balance the different elements? So, for example, health and pensions are part of welfare, and pensions is particularly part of welfare. And the other unemployment, disability, etc., benefits are also part of welfare. How are we going to balance these things? And the general consensus has been, politically, protect pensions, protect the health service as far as possible, and cut the other benefits. That is a strategic decision. Is it right? Is it wrong? What's the balance? It's, the balance is very, very critical. And of course, just in case you don't know, what is the largest element of uh, generic welfare ben, uh, payments in our society, pensions by a mile, vastly exceeds mo- the other benefits, followed by housing. And other, other ones are much, much lower. Don't forget, pensions is the biggest part of our welfare budget if you put health in a separate department. It's related, but it's not exactly the same. And then I've, I've alluded to an interesting debate historically. It's still with us now. 
Should we be just redistributing wealth by taking taxes and giving it out to people, or should we reintroduce the contribution principle which has got less and less and less as time has gone on? It was right there with the friendly societies. The whole thing was built on it. It still existed with the liberal reforms, and it was declining um, as the Labour government uh, made their generic welfare reforms. Some Christian commentators, for example, Dr. Anna Rowlands, Roman Catholic, Frank Field, Labour MP, Anglican background, professing Christian, and others are suggesting that the contribution principle should be reinstituted into the welfare system in the following, roughly the following way. That um, for those who can't make a financial contribution in, they make a social contribution. Students, people who haven't got any money, people who are unemployed. So that you bring um, a sense of people partnering together for, for welfare, putting something in as well as taking something out. Not everyone agrees with that. It's an issue you may want to comment on. But this is being hotly debated. Or is it just that we take money from one and give it to the other? It's like a human rights issue. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a, an interesting debate going on there. Demography is challenging us in two ways. We have a rising population. We're projected to overtake France in population become the second most populous country in the EU area very shortly if present trends continue. The population is increasing. That's put pressures on all services. The second demographic trend that's really challenging for us is the aging population. Remember what I said about pensions. The bill is going up and up and up and up and the cost of provision is going up and up and up and up. I spoke to a chief executive of um, an area authority who said to me, uh, personally, in private conversation, I just don't know how we're going to find the money for our social um, care bill over the next 10 years. We're going to have to reinvent it. And he said, I want to talk to you because you in the churches are the only people who can probably help us. Now, we wouldn't have had that conversation 10 years ago. And this is because the role of the voluntary sector is now becoming prominent. And that's the faith community, and most of that is the churches, and the majority of the churches is the evangelical churches. So here's a little story from Christ Central. Not long ago, there were floods in Cumbria. In one particular town, Kendall, the food bank run by our church there, principally, was appointed by the local authorities to coordinate flood relief, and as a result, Rachel, who runs the food bank, was invited by the previous Prime Minister, do you remember him, David Cameron, um, to Downing Street for a thank you for helping with the floods meeting. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago because there wouldn't have been a food bank and there wouldn't have been that Christian activism. And now the government is beginning to realize what is going on. Now, from a Jubilee Plus point of view, I've been in meetings in Westminster with MPs, with uh, other activists, and I've noticed... Time and time again, government ministers I've heard talking in different departments, they are fundamentally rethinking the role of the voluntary sector. It's being reimagined, even as we speak, out of need. Three Christian perspectives, then I'll pause. By the way, is this okay? You're looking very pensive. It's interesting though, isn't it? History's the best thing, by the way. 
I just love history because we can learn so much by contextualizing what we face now rather than just reading it out the newspapers let's look at the history how did we get here and then the second source we need for information is the scriptures obviously because there is a real risk in the evangelical world that social need drives us in the sense that the need determines precisely we're going to do this because there is a need and then we haven't got a fundamental rationale for that approach and then further down the line we get stuck our rationale for meeting need has got to be fundamentally God orientated kingdom orientated and scripturally founded and related to the need closely in order to be kingdom advancing and holistic and long term so here we are here's just a couple of thoughts for you um, on the a biblical perspective. Now, what I've noticed in the law of Moses, they had all the economic laws in the law of Moses, the law of gleaning, the Sabbath year, uh, the debt relief after seven years, the year of Jubilee where land was redistributed back to family ownership. These are very interesting principles. And, and what they indicate to us is that redistribution and contribution were both in the Old Testament model of welfare. When the land went back to the families, that's redistribution. But when there's a law of gleaning, that means the farmer has to leave the, 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 the corn on the side. But actually, who goes and collects it? You have to contribute your labor. If someone gives you back your land, you still have to farm your land. So there's a personal responsibility emphasized in Scripture but only to a certain point because people only have a certain capacity and opportunity. And the redistribution principles are the backbone or the, or the, the foundation. So the redistribution opportunities give an opportunity for you to rebuild your life. You make what contribution you can. The widow who gleans can just glean. The person who's relieved of his debt, that's a redistribution issue. But then he needs to get working on the land. That's a contribution issue. And interestingly enough, in the New Testament, embryonically, we see the same pattern. When the food was, was given out in the first food bank in the Jerusalem church, which I mentioned from Acts 6 uh, a couple of days ago in a different context, that's an act of redistribution. But when Paul deals with welfare issues in the churches, he's also looking for contribution or personal responsibility. Which widows do we put on the list? Well, not the ones who've got family who can support them, not the ones who are not making any effort to sort out their life. What about the guy who said, I want to be on the food bank program, and, the, and you say to him, well, I think you should go and get a job. Well, I don't fancy getting a job. He who shall not work shall not eat. That's what Paul says in answer to that one. Um, that doesn't mean you starve him to death. That means you give him the responsibility to go and get a job when there's work down the line. So there's something, a creative tension there that we have to negotiate in every situation which our nation needs to negotiate. The second thing to say, and the Archbishop of York, John Santarmu, loves to say this, we've always been involved in welfare. Long before the welfare state, long before welfare reforms, church has been involved in welfare throughout its whole history. That's a good thing to say. Because some secularists have, sec secularists have questioned whether that is the case. And therefore, the church is well positioned to get back into the frame 
when state welfare begins to crumble, as it is doing. So what's our approach to welfare? We support the development of the welfare state. As the welfare state developed, there was strong support from the church. Christian thinkers are involved in thinking it through. The current Archbishop, William Temple, in the 1940s, strongly endorsed the principles of the Beveridge Report and everything that happened. But we also provide critique if we see injustice. And so there's been a process recently of critique of certain aspects of welfare, which has been complicated and painful for government and for churches. There have been some tensions and pressure points. Matt may want to talk about those uh, where one doesn't want to be punitive towards different sectors of the people. We don't want to create the idea of some poor being deserving and some being undeserving. That's a risk. It's a cultural risk when the money is short and the compassion is running out and the pressures are on in other areas. And the church has to uh, negotiate that risk and challenge uh, negative attitudes as they come in. Well, that's the first half of what we want to say. Now, my colleague Sheena is around with a microphone, I think. Here we are. So I'm just going to take a couple of questions. If there are any on this, then I'm going to hand over to Matt. Have you found that helpful? Okay, I'm giving, obviously I haven't gone into depth. Lots of things you probably want to ask in more depth. But overview is very important before we get into the details. So questions, gentlemen over here. She's a good sprinter. And there's a lady there on the back row, number two and number three. We'll take those three at least. Do you have any insight with regards to what Theresa May is going to do in her government? Um, she hasn't actually told me, if I'm honest. Um, uh, the answer is no. I think that in the, in the public domain is her desire to get away from the label of austerity. Um, uh, she hasn't told me. I'm not sure she told Matt either. But Matt may want to comment on it. By the way, this is Matt Cameron. Can you give him a warm welcome? <laughs> Who is a church planter in Halifax but works for the Trussell Trust. And it's in the second capacity that his expertise is greatly appreciated. By. Um, very briefly on your question, um, we had a very closed... We, we had no way in whatsoever. I'll talk a little bit from where we're coming from in terms of DWP and, and having a conversation there. The only thing I can say is that since Ian Duncan Smith is gone and Mr. Crabb had his little flurry, we now actually have a meeting in a, in a week or two. So that's the only thing we can say is that there's a warmth there now that wasn't there maybe um, in the past four and or five the we, years. And the we is the Trussell Trust. Well, yeah, specifically the CEO of the Trussell Trust. So CEO of the Trussell Trust. So, that's, so, um, so the Trussell yeah. Trust is a very, very important player in, in this issue and a, a strate strategic partner with um, Jubilee Plus. So um, we'll, we'll hear more on that. Yeah, I'll explain a little bit. Yeah, we'll talk, are, so if, there'll be more coming on that one. Second question at the back. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, I can understand there's only so much money that can go around. And uh, I've got some personal experience with people on disability benefits, uh, which seemed to me, on the whole, quite generous. Uh, when did the uh, extra money uh, come in? Because it seems to me that's one of the things they've got to do now is cut back, which is always very, very difficult to do. Um, but when 
did the extra <laughs> things on disability, a housing benefit and so on come, come into the original uh, 1940s welfare system? I mean, it seems uh, oh, to me well, they've gradually gone up, have okay, they gradually? Yeah, well, or can can I just make a, general, can I make a general comment on this? Uh, just a general perspective about how welfare benefits have developed but we can't go into the very precise detail in this context, but you could ask me after. So the general picture would be that in the 1945 to 51 Labour government, there were foundational benefits established, pensions, unemployment, and the national health were established. But what we've seen, the trajectory between then and the 2010 coalition government has been a gradual diversification and development of subsidiary uh, benefits or uh, other benefits. And that took quite an advance under the new Labour government as things were introduced and developed. And so that's an incremental process that's gone on through that time. I think it needs to be said contextually that the benefits provided in the, uh, the original welfare reforms of 19, the 1940s were very, very basic and they were not designed to provide any comfort at all. Um, and that was in the beverage thinking. So it was, the it was the wisdom of subsequent governments, both conservative and particularly Labour governments, that we need to be more generous with welfare and, and welfare developed. And then it's the perspective of the more recent conservative-led governments that we need to take a fundamental review of what's actually happened. So that's a generic uh, statement. Uh, this gentleman here, Sheena. She's getting quicker and quicker, but it's getting further and further. Just wanted to suggest a fifth challenge, which you might like to consider adding to your list and have your. I will in future. It. I'm always modifying my notes after every time I speak. That is the unwillingness of us as a society to countenance tax increases in order to meet this growing, growing need. Uh, yeah. It's happened in a few isolated, but nobody within the political mainstream seems yeah. to be prepared to put that up because they'll just get completely shot down. And, 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 and yeah. I just wonder what that says about us as a society and whether there's an yeah. opportunity to counter that within a from Christian yeah. context. Yeah. Well, I think that, yeah, the level of taxation is uh, a hugely contentious issue and one of incredible political sensitivity because most parties know that most of the time any suggestion of tax increases is an electoral disaster, or they think it's going to be an electoral disaster unless it's sold well. So that is part of the challenge. Um, but I think it comes under the redistribution point because the question is how much have you got to redistribute, which is related to the strength of the economy, the amount of taxation you take, and the proportion you give to each department of government. So you've got all those, there's a strategic inter interplay between all those things going on all the time. One more question, if there is one, very briefly, and then I'm going to hand over to Matt, this lady on the back row. I uh, don't want to take Matt's time. It's very, very important what he's going to share, but we're just getting the background clear. Yeah. I'm just really interested, you know, as you said about the contributory and then the yeah. redistribution and the swing back to the contributory. Um, what's that looking like? Do you, you know, what... What, what are you hearing? Do you know what I mean, are the principles from more well, a nationwide response, not just a church okay. response? Yeah. Well, I think what, what I'm alluding to is the fact that there's been a lot of 
kind of more strategic rethinking going on amongst think tanks and thinkers of various sorts. And what I've noticed in reading them is a lot of people are beginning to think we've lost something by breaking the link between contribution and receipt. Now, we can't recreate the friendly society model, and it wasn't fair to everyone anyway because a lot of people couldn't afford to be in it or were excluded from it. So, but the benefit of the contributory model is that you get more buy-in from the general public if you feel that everyone's making an effort. And what is toxic in welfare at the moment is the feeling, rightly or wrongly, that some people are making an effort, paying all their taxes, doing the right thing, heard that phrase somewhere before, and others are not. And so whether that's true or not, one way of modifying that narrative is to, uh, to reintroduce the concept that everyone is a contributor, like everyone pays their national insurance stamp, as it were, to, to extend that um, through, through, either through taxation or, uh, this is the critical thing, to find ways of people to contribute who don't have the finances to do it, and the radical thought is to find ways... Uh, of social contribution for, that are equivalent to financial contribution for people until they have the capacity to do it. So there's some radical rethinking going on theoretically. To what extent that affects government policy is an entirely separate question. But I just put it on the page because it resonates with a biblical theme and therefore should be in the discussion, although the outworking is complex. Right. Matt, we need, you need a microphone. So um, I'm going to ask Matt to take us into the sort of ground level, current issues side of things. Um, so yes, my name is Matt Cameron. I moonlight as a church planter in Halifax, um, but my day job is with the Trussell Trust. Just to say, to start with, this is a huge topic. You could probably write a thesis on, on the current state, and it's an ever-changing landscape anyway. Um, so... Um, I imagine that what I'm about to say will actually, well, I'm hoping actually that what I'm about to say will, will raise more questions than I answer necessarily. That's what I'm aiming to do. I'm not kind of trying to tie a big bow around it all. The reality is it's a very difficult situation, depending where you're coming from politically, biblically, all these different factors um, come into account. So my brief is this. I read it in the handbook. <laughs> Matt will discuss. I didn't read it. I'm joking, Mark. I'm joking, Mark. Matt will discuss, I will, uh, the, the practical challenges churches face as they run projects like food banks and encounter many problems relating to the outworking of the welfare system today. There are two elements to that. What are the problems inherent with the welfare system as it is now? And what are the challenges that we, at churches, we as churches face? So that those are the two things that I'm going to attempt to address and then throw it open for questions. Just to say a little bit about the Trussell Trust, um, so we were founded in 1996 to build houses in Bulgaria. That's essentially what the Trussell Trust was. I don't know if you knew that. Um, that's essentially what we were um, designed to do. Um, at, in kind of 1999, our founder, uh, a, chap, a military chap called Paddy Henderson from Salisbury, wonderfully, wonderful Salisbury. That's where our first food bank was. And he had come back to do some fundraising for um, the, the, the work in Bulgaria. He was collared by a local mum who said, it's great to see what you're doing out there to help people who can't afford to feed themselves. But I can't, my, my husband has just left me. I'm in crisis. I've got two kids. I've got nothing in the cupboards. He's emptied the bank accounts. What are you going to do to help me? Great question. Being a man of action, he took her to the shop and bought her some food to get her through the crisis. 
That's all she needed was to get her through the crisis. He then had an idea. Surely there, this can't be happening in Salisbury. Surely? Have you been to Salisbury? It's well posh. It's not, not like Halifax. Um, and, and he said, look, he started asking frontline care professionals, social workers, you know, GPs, the, the such schools, do you have families in Salisbury who can't afford to feed themselves? And they all said, yes. What are you doing? Well, we're kind of feeding them ourselves now. And he kind of had this idea of food bank where he would ask his friends who could afford food to put food into his food bank. See where the name came from? And it was his garden shed initially. It wouldn't pass any of our regula- strict regulations now. And uh, he, he, um, he would then issue vouchers to frontline care professionals who would send their clients that they knew to be in need and that they could then be supported through the food bank through their short-term crisis. Note, through their short-term crisis, not long-term. Okay, key, distinctive, really important principle. And nothing's really changed except for the fact that we now have 420 food banks across the UK, right up to the tip of Scotland where I didn't even know people lived, right down to the south of England, and they, they have between them about 1,400 sites. So that's access points. We partner with something like estimates about 47,000 frontline care professionals. You can't turn up to a food bank and ask for food. Well, you can, but you know, they, you, you'll be sent away to get a voucher unless it's, you know, there's, there's flexibility. We're Christians, okay, sorry. But that's the fundamental principle. 10,000 churches are involved. We reckon we're probably about 40% of the food bank population in the UK. We strive and work with all food banks wherever we can get them. Um, I'll probably talk about networks, local networks, a little bit later on in terms of tackling this issue. But we are in a very good position. We're very, in a very good position nationally to comment on what we're seeing on the ground. Part of what we do as part of our social franchise, that's what we are, we're like Costa Coffee with a conscience. And um, we offer a central data system for each food bank to enable to run. So it's just looking at their vouchers, issuing vouchers, donor database, stock in, stock out, etc. And that's all fed into a central system, anonymized, fed into a central system whereby we can, I, if we had a Wi-Fi here and, you know, whatever, I could tell you today how many people last week were fed in our network and the reasons why. Headline stats as to the reasons why. And we found ourselves kind of by accident as a bit of a national voice, which is a bit of a kind of strange place to be in. And incidentally, we had a massive boom from 2010. And the primary reason why people come to our food banks for a short-term support, top two reasons, 55% between them, some sort of problem with your benefit in terms of you changing from one benefit to another, and there's some sort of kind of issue with that, or some administrative problem, some sort of benefit delay. Now, that was pre-sanctioning. Does everybody know what I mean by sanctioning? So this is where you're, you've got an agreement with a job center. You don't fulfill your agreement. You turn up late to the appointment or don't do enough job searches. They have the power to sanction you between three weeks and up to three years, I think. Is that... Is that uh, I'm, I'm not actually an expert in the welfare system. I'm an expert on food banks, but we see a lot. We see that we see what's going on uh, on a national scale. So that's just the headline from where I'm coming from. I support 34 food banks in Yorkshire, Humber, a bit of Lancashire, and a bit of Cheshire. Um, I support them in terms of their charity uh, development. I support them with training, 
and getting them kind of corporate support, et cetera, et cetera. This is by far and away the biggest thing that we're having to deal with facing the other way, as uh, Martin helpfully you know, kind of pointed out. The church is in a great position to critique as it is, but also support, and that's what essentially what we're trying to do at the same time. So what are we saying are the problems with the benefits, the welfare system as it is? Just as a writer, I want to honor all those who work in the DWP. Um, this is not personal at all. Um, I've met some fantastic people who are really trying hard, really trying their best, um, but fundamentally we're talking about a system here that is broken. Um, so the first thing to note is that the system is clunky and cracking. It is clunky and cracking. Um, Universal credit. You apply for universal credit, you've got a five-week delay at least. They say it the most, but the reality is it's at least a five-week delay before you see any money. What do you do in that time? What do you do at that point where you don't have any money, you've gone into this new system, where you turn up at a food bank, you get referred to the food bank? least six, we've got a, a story of a nurse in Clitheroe um, who turned up, new job, was on Job Seekers Alliance because that's what the Job Seekers Alliance is there for, to help you through that time where you, you're, ser- you're searching for a job. Everybody aware of what Job Seekers Alliance is? And um, once she got a job, it stopped, understandably. She didn't get paid because of another delay with her job. She didn't get paid for another six weeks. She was mortified. Clitheroe, you know, nice area again. She turned up at the food bank. There are inherent problems with the timings of, you know, so these aren't, pe- these aren't spongers is what I'm trying to say. Again, this language we've got to get away from that everyone on benefits is sponging. It's there to support people in their time of need, but actually what we're seeing is that it's not supporting them in their time of need because of things like this. Um, know a chap on Universal Credit, and he's false started a couple of times in different jobs he's got to take some responsibility for that but he's actually actively searching for work really you know got a good relationship with his um job center worker and um he um looked at his bank account was expecting his universal credit to come through and there was nothing so he phoned the job center and said what's going on and they say oh it says that you've had 600 pounds in you in this you've been paid 600 pounds he said i haven't worked in about three months they did a bit of digging. He did a little bit of work for a couple of weeks, kind of three or four months prior. It hadn't registered on the system until that week. It had double registered, so he was registered as double double paid and actually just didn't get any money that because of that. Do you, you see what I'm saying? You see that we're seeing these stories time and time again for food bank clients. These aren't people who are trying to play the system. They're genuinely trying to get by, but the system is letting them down and they're falling through the cracks. I mean, you can understand that there's an incredible amount of pressure on staff there as well. But that's the first point, is that admin errors, delays in payments, etc., are all signs that the system itself is not doing what it's intending to do. And um, that's obviously a huge problem. Second thing to say is that there are definite practices that grate. Is that a really political way of saying? I don't like some of the things they do. Things like sanctioning. Now, Trust of Trust has kind of got this rap in the press that we're anti-sanctioning. Actually, sanctioning when applied correctly is actually quite a good idea. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, I'm allowed to say whatever I want. 
But we keep seeing more and more, like, incredible stories. Like, they seem incredible. So much so that I sat with a quite a notorious uh, MP. I'll leave it there. Um, at one of our food banks in North Bradford. That's probably narrowing it down a little bit. Who was just like, they're just making it up. These stories just can't be true. But it's stories um, of... Um, one woman in Hull who was pregnant, suffered a miscarriage, missed her appointment, and then was sanctioned for nine months. There's just no regular room. Do you mean it? And the system of sanctioning is kind of, you know, that grates, doesn't it? If you're a Christian here, you're like, what? I mean, you know, when I heard it, I was welling up. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. And, you know, and, but that's not someone going, ha, 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 this will sort her out. This is just the system and the way things are set up the way these decisions are made, there's so little wriggle room that once it's done, it's done. Statistic for you, 60% of sanctions that are challenged are reversed. Would you say there's a problem there? Do you think it's easy to challenge it? It's not. There's all sorts of things. Incidentally, they changed it uh, recently, and the number of challenges that were being made reduced by 15% just because it's really difficult. It's just really difficult to challenge a sanction. The other thing they say is, this is cheery stuff, uh, disability and uh, sickness benefits are quite notorious. And um, I sat with an um, uh, incredible woman in Sheffield, did a radio interview with um, Radio Sheffield, BBC Radio Sheffield, and uh, just speaking to her, I mean, she had, she'd been on benefits, incapacitated because of severe mental health, but she was quite high-functioning, so she was able to hold down a conversation. When they had the whole review where everybody had to be interviewed again in terms of are you actually entitled, are you fit to work, um, her interview lasted 10 minutes. It was the, the, the person's first actual interview, brand-new job, and they just went, she's definitely able to work signed her off, benefits instantly stopped, sent into her into a spiral of depression and debt. 18 months later, with the help of the local food bank, she was able to challenge it. It was reversed. Oh, actually, we should have been paying you these last 18 months. Again, I'm not trying to have a go at any individuals. The brief is, what are the, what are, what are the issues with the benefit system? And that is one. And it's a symptom of a system that is just under-resourced, poor training, at the same time, we're talking about people's lives here. So we can't kind of brush it under the carpet. I think we'll come on to that in a second. So that's just two there. Punitive sanctions and just this, that, that has, there's definitely been a fallout with that whole review process that went on um, within the last two years. Um, the third thing to say is, and, and this is one that's difficult, um, is probably just a culture within job centers particularly where there's suspicion and harshness. And I think that's probably coming from managers level, etc. A lot of pressure going on, um, but also this how clients are being viewed. Um, and it just, it just lends itself to you not wanting to go in. And it generates this us and them thing. And a culture is obviously very difficult to um, recreate. A culture is very difficult to turn around, but I'd say definitely, you know, I've got food banks that if you say job center, they spit. Um, some have fantastic working relationships with them, but others are just like, we can get never get anywhere with a manager. And it's obviously really important that we check our hearts on that. Um, but the culture 
is kind of opposite to what we would do in the food bank. It's actually a little bit of a training point where you kind of say, just think of the food bank in reverse, or think of the job center and then reverse it. You don't want an us in them. You don't want to be rushing people through. You want to be really caring for people as they come in. So those are the three. Again, this is probably causing all sorts of questions to run through your mind, and I'm obviously trying to stick to time. I have plenty of time for questions, but those would be the three main um, problems relating to the outworking of the, we- the current welfare system that we're seeing. Um, the system is clunking and cracking. There are definite problems and practices that great, like sanctioning and the, this harsh review process, and that the culture in the job center is counterproductive to, um, well, taking care of people's welfare. So what are the practical challenges for churches? Well, first of all, just to echo what Martin has already talked about, is that obviously the church is already doing an incredible amount in meeting the needs. People falling through the cracks. We were opening three food banks a week nationally, um, kind of from 2011, 2012. There is definitely a correlation between the implementation of welfare reform. See how I chose my language quite carefully there. It needs reformed, but the current implementation, there was a huge fallout in terms of people just falling through the system, falling through the cracks that were generated during that implementation. And just to say that churches are doing incredibly well, I'm not just talking about the ones that are in our network, in terms of our food bank network, there are loads of churches doing incredible things. And I just want to publicly, whatever you're doing to meet the needs of those in your community, well done. And I think it's speaking volumes to a deeply secular society that the church is stepping up and stepping in. So well done. Um, and it's getting better. The, the quality is getting better that we're becoming experts. I mean, it, my pro, some of my project managers blow me away with the kind of stuff that they know and the, the, the reach they have and the influence they have locally. They're just seen as, and obviously Martin having incredible conversations with people. The influence that we're now allowed and afforded because we've done this stuff, we've got credibility, is really exciting in society, really exciting. So I just wanted to say that as a writer. But what are the practical challenges? Again, there are loads, but just three to get the conversation started. This whole thing about long-term dependency and where's the balance? So you can have a scenario where we stop welfare altogether because the church has already got the infrastructure to support everyone? That's a big question. Is that, is that right in today's society? What should the state be doing? Should the church be doing anything? You know, I've, I've had conversations with very angry lefties who say, well, we should just shut them all down, shut every food bank down, and that'll force the issue. I think a couple have done it, but nothing happened. <laughs> that didn't work. Yeah, people are starving. That's fundamentally what we're going to do. We've got to meet the need, but we've all got to challenge why the need is there in the first place. I mean, we obviously, we limit, um, we don't have a three strikes and you're out policy, um, which some people said. We, you know, we support people as long as their crisis um, is needed. We, we have traditionally measured volume like you would A&E, so we don't measure unique visits. We are starting to have changed how we've done it, but for the last five years, we've measured volume through um, the food bank. So last financial year, it was a million that came through. Um, 60% need, sorry, 60% needed one visit to the food bank. 20% needed two. And the rest needed much more than that. So by and large, statistically, 
you don't actually need to depend on the food bank. But those that do, do need it for a long time. If you've been sanctioned for ages, you can't get work because, you know, it's just very difficult to get work. Um, I would dispute some of the figures that are coming out, but that's maybe a different um, different topic altogether. Um, but it's very, very difficult. Incredibly difficult um, question of how, how long do we support these people? And that's where partnership's key. You've got to partner with local care professionals who know people, who are helping people into long-term support, who are, are enabling people to stand on their own two feet. And increasingly, more and more, and certainly we've got a massive push on this nationally, is that we've, we're taking what we're calling a more-than-food approach to the food bank. And I know that many of the larger um, food banks with, with good resources are able to do this. We're talking financial advice at the food bank. We're talking job clubs, partnering with job clubs, CAP, etc., it's all about partnership, people. If, you want to, if we're going to meet these challenges that we're coming out, we're going to have to do it together. It's not all we're, and that's what we're all about, um, regardless of what you've ever read. Um, just to say one thing that we're working on is um, um, access to justice, which is a bolt-on for food banks, um, where we're, looking, we're working with the London Law Society, um, just to develop simple procedures for appealing things like disputes with landlords or things like um, challenging decisions that are made by the job centre. Um, and that's so far in the pilot has had a 100% success rate just by enabling people to write simple letters with the right language in it. Um, and because no one wants to get into sort of any legal battles or anything, actually people are finding these injustices are being dealt with very quickly just simply by having that simple um, access to justice um, it's, like I said, it's very early days. So the long-term dependency is an, uh, is an issue. Obviously, then, is tackling injustice or perceived injustice. How do we do that effectively? If you're sat there with someone in your food bank and they've been sanctioned and it's totally unjust, you're like, come home with me. I'll look after you. It's not going to be the solution. We've got to tackle the issues. There's a policy issue here. Um, We've done this um, by being very firmly, and we have done this, and you may have all sorts of um, ideas. Certainly, we've learned from um, the way we've done it and whether it's been helpful or not. Um, we've changed how we're doing it, but we've presented stats and stories consistently to try and get it into the public consciousness that there is something wrong and that people are suffering because of this. We need to do something with it. It's all our problem. It's not just a poor problem. It's all our problem. Um, but I think we've kind of done the equivalent of throwing media hand grenades and hoping that something happens. We've changed tack now. We're doing a lot more meeting with MPs, etc., as Martin has been doing. And we've partnered with other, you know, kind of, it's not just us that are banging a drum. It's not just the staff. We've got Dave Patterson from you know, Unity Poverty Action, who, lo who works with food aid providers, um, including ours in, in West Yorkshire and, or sorry, in Leeds and then in West Yorkshire as well. And we're partnering together to release stuff to the, the media to say, look, this is our collective experience. We need to have a discussion about this. So we can publicly challenge it, but also using that influence now to have a more one-on-one -on -one approach to, to work closely with MPs, sitting with whoever will speak to us and just say, tell stories, uh, tell us that's things that we're seeing. Um, so the, those two challenges then are the issue of long-term dependency and the getting that balance. Martin kind of touched on that i think that's it's an open question i don't you know it, it, there's so many variables in that that actually i think it's a very difficult question to answer tackling perceived injustice and taking responsibility of those and being part of that conversation and one that i'm not going to develop too much 
But one of the challenges is, this is politics. Whether you like it or not, if you're involved in poverty relief in the UK, you're involved in politics. You can't get away from that. Because it's about where resources go and decisions that are made by politicians. And therefore, you are already part of the conversation. I've got food banks that just hide it, just want to meet you, and that's fine. But ultimately, food poverty, any sort of poverty, is a political issue. And it's not party politically, but political. We remain apolitical, regardless of your kind of personal convictions, etc. But the church is involved in politics now. I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. Um, so that's, do you want me to recap that? Because I'm aware I didn't have slides. So what are the problems? The system is clunky and cracking. There are definite practices that are unjust, I'm just going to say it, that are just actually wrong. And that there's a culture within the administration of the benefit system that is very difficult to work with and creates a culture within itself among those that are using it. What are the challenges? Well, obviously, well done. That was the middle bit. Well done. Um, the, the challenges are, what do you do with long-term dependency? Where do we go with that? Where do we stop? Where do we keep going, etc.? How do we effectively tackle injustice now? How do we be a voice? And what about politics? Is that enough? Is that all right? Yeah. That's your appreciation. Right, thank you, Matt. Um, well, this is a good opportunity now. We've got um, over 15 minutes. So, um, Sheena, if you could just take the mic. Uh, let's get some questions to Matt. Uh, there's one coming from this gentleman in the middle here. So if you could pass the mic along the row, that'd be great. Thank you. Oh, thank you for that. On the one hand, there's a lot of need, and that's clear. On the other hand, there's a lot of news about the amount of waste we see. And I just wondered, I know some companies, supermarkets and, and fast food chains do try and uh, donate excess food. Do you see that as the Trussell Trust? And is that working? Okay. So. Great, great question. I think there's a philosophical um, question there around, so you could re-divert all food waste to those who are poor. Yeah, we, we couldn't have, I mean, I think, I think, you know, Tesco came out and said, Tesco, just to say, I, I am wearing the Trussell Trust hat here, but I'm also wearing, I'm wearing my part of Christ Central, I'm your friend, hat as well. So I'm going to give you a little bit more than I would if I was at a Rotary Club or something like that. <laughs> um, I think you're right. I think Tesco came out and said that they have officially, they will re-divert all re resources to charities, which I think is fantastic. And we, Tesco is a huge partner of ours, huge partner. Um, but... I think there's a different question there. One around, it's actually, it's Tesco's problem that they've got a lot of food waste. It's not my problem. So we have instances where food banks have got a thousand jars of chili and honey. And, you know, that's no good to me in a crisis. But they give it to me actually cynically because they don't have to then pay to get rid of it. So... Because my food, our food banks have to pay often to get rid of their waste, and um, because they are seen as kind of you know they they have very minimal waste. So I think there's that question, but also I think there's um, a value thing there of you're in dire need here, have the dregs, 
And I think that's something that... So we don't currently take a lot of food waste. I mean, apart from food banks partnering with their local Greggs for sausage rolls or whatever, that have to be gone by the end of the day. There are fantastic charities that do deal with food waste, like Fair Share, which is a national charity, fantastic charity. Um, but <clears throat> I think... Um, uh, we're not going to get involved. We're, doing, we're starting to open community shops, which is another kind of conversation altogether. But again, we're, taking, we're being very selective. So I think we don't want to become the default answer to the food waste problem because the food waste issue is actually a completely different issue. So we've kind of hum and hummed and kind of not listened quite. But yeah, it's, it's not a solution we're looking for. Um, there was another question behind you. Can I just comment on that one first, yes. Matt? Um, so just on the community shop thing, here's an interesting trajectory which I think I see coming up, which is that the concept of a community shop or a social supermarket is to gain resources from other supermarkets and other sources, create a, a, literally a shop of basic food, it's a shop, and then provide certain people privileged access to that shop because of certain benefit criteria for a certain period of time, and then they pay, say, 30%, 40% of the cost. So it answers the, an, an issue relating to long-term, short-term. Yep. So I see a potential development in this country where the community shop movement will grow. So I just wanted to, I don't know yep. if you agree with that. And I think... We've got three opening in the yeah, next year. There's a lot of people looking at it, a lot of social entrepreneurs looking at it at the moment. So that's just a, a comment yep. on that. Next question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, with the universal credits coming in, the intention behind that was to simplify some of the arrangements, although obviously there's a lot of admin issues, as you've highlighted. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with universal credits, but is it advantageous, uh, what's actually being proposed, or what's your view on that? I mean, again, it's quite, quite a specific question. We don't have a lot of experience. I think on paper, um, if you're able to manage your money well, it's a great idea. But when the, the idea was first muted, we all kind of were terrified that actually, you know, if you've got some sort of issue and all of a sudden all this money lands in your account and it's your responsibility to pay the landlord first, but actually you've got some underlying issues, etc. actually there could be a whole load of issues with that. And we were expecting Armageddon. It never came because Universal Credit never came. Um, although it's, it is obviously still being ruled out slightly, and you know I've got a friend who's, who was on it, and you know it's just just happening late, so we're just just waiting to hear. And um, we didn't see the mad effect that we thought we would. Um, but then, having said that, the rollout was so minimal that it kind of is understandable. So on paper, yes, but big question marks around people's ability to really manage it well. We're going right to the back here. I just wondered from a Trust or Trust uh, point of view, do you have uh, specific age demographics who access it, your services the most? And I guess what I'm asking alongside that is, with the challenge mentioned in ageing population um, and there being a, a problem about to arise there, are you seeing any change in demographics in terms of older people accessing? That was quite surreal, because I stand here and answer that. Um, that is a great question. Um, statistically... Out of the one million people who came through our food banks traffic-wise, what percentage do you think were over 65? That's a question. 10%? Any advances? 
less than 1%, less than 1%. So we have no doubt that there are people of that generation struggling, no doubt. Age UK tell us that they are, but actually I think there's a bit of a pride thing, ma massively, and it's, it's, it's one of our, it's one of the nuts we haven't cracked yet, and we try and we try, and every food bank tries all sorts of initiatives, all sorts of awareness, et cetera, come, but it's not necessarily coming. To be honest, with the, 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 the data we have, we don't have enough. We've just changed how we're gathering it because one of our downfalls was if we had known how big this was going to get, we would have fundamentally changed Or from the outset. We essentially set this system up to enable a small food bank to run itself and to be able to do some minor reporting. So our, our information isn't detailed enough. Now, we have done more in-depth locally. We've changed our system as of April this year, which, has anybody involved in the Trust of Trust Food Bank? Wasn't it awful? Or <laughs> just earlier, yeah. We had an awful, awful implementation rollout from that. But actually, we're, so if, you know, this time next year, we should have much more information on that. But definitely, um, definitely kind of younger adult. I mean, you're talking the age bracket's 25 to 65 or something. Else. We just don't know. But certainly older people aren't really using it. Hey, I, I work with refugees and asylum seekers, and through that, I'm on the phone to the DWP all the time, and I've seen some horrific things like you said about people not getting the, the, the money in, I think one guy, three months it took him to get money, and somebody else, you know, the mother with children for weeks and weeks and weeks with no money, and I'm just interested to know whether the government acknowledges how bad it actually is when you kind of tell them. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm going to be completely honest. Don't tweet this from, and don't tap. If you're going to tweet anything about Trust or Trust, just say we had Matt Cameron, he's doing a great job. Um, but um, yeah, we, we had nothing. We had denial or just stonewalled. Um, I asked one of our trustees is a chap called Robert Key, who is some of older. He was on Thatcher's cabinet. He's one of the trustees. He was responsible for the poll tax. And I asked him, I was having a drink with him, and I was like, um, why are we not getting anywhere? And he said, politically, if you're doing something that's not working, you never admit it. Because fundamentally, that's the end of your job. So I, I like to think that that, you know, when I think, because it's, to me, it's obvious in terms of the stories that are coming back. Um, but actually, I just think there's other things going on there in terms of work. And they are desperately trying to get it right. But it's just a huge mess at the minute and, and so difficult to turn around. And lots of different pressures and policy. Obviously, Ian Duncan Smith resigned quite publicly because of that, you know, which we were all like, oh, what? You know, so I think I, think, I don't know. Um, but we certainly have been talking about it loud enough. Um, so I'm just hoping that it's actually just, they've just got other considerations and they're desperately trying to fix it. So I'm, I am hoping that they are listening. Should we go here? Or? Yeah, let's go here. That's a, it's a very similar question. You know, our, our country's in um, uncharted waters, particularly it's like Brexit, Brexit um, vote and the things facing our country. How much 
sort of time, energy, sort of percentage or whatever? How much has been really given by the government to sort of sorting out this problem? I mean, you just said it a little bit, but uh, can you add a bit more? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if you want to comment. We just don't, it's a complete unknown, isn't it? That's why you just have to have conversations. I mean, obviously, Frank I think, Field is doing... Yeah, I think the, 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 the particular issue at the moment is the government's facing this gigantic Brexit agenda, and the DWP has changed hands of leadership twice in a very short succession. Um, so it's, it's what happens in the department, really, and how the department projects that into national policy in interaction with the Treasury and other departments, which is the challenge. So I think there's been a hiatus, and I think there have been some really, really big challenges for the government uh, because the implementation has been problematical. I just think if I... Could I back up and just say... So that would be my answer. Can I just back up and say one more thing about universal credit? I think just in case you don't know what the issue with universal credit is, um, it's agreed by both Labour and Conservatives that a, a simplification of the benefit system has become, had become necessary. So that was generically agreed. But universal credit, therefore, combines a number of different credits into a single payment, makes the payment variable in a number of ways according to employment, more flexible. But one of the, imp the implementation has been hugely complicated and delayed in, for all sorts of reasons, including IT and lots of other things. But the other risk factor, which Matt alluded to, but I'd like to just say a little bit more on, on it, is that it comes as a single payment into your bank account or to you personally. And the, the risk of this um, is that particularly in the area of housing, where previously payments might have, been, might have gone directly to a housing provider, it comes to me, and if I don't quickly pay my rent, make it the top priority, then we have a real vulnerability in terms of the uh, partnership with the private housing sector, and then we have a housing crisis. So uh, there, there are a whole series of risks um, attached to it, which is why it is such a difficult issue at the moment. And there's been a huge amount of energy gone into it, massive amount of money, and it's still, it's still it delayed and delayed and delayed. Very complicated, very tense situation. We're finishing just, in five minutes, by the way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. If just to ask the question, Matt, we look at churches, we look at us as Christians, how we can have an impact. Is it important that we divide welfare into two areas? One is policy that is conservative policy that I might not agree with as an individual, like the under-occupancy rule, the bedroom tax, as some people call it. And I have to say as an individual, and the church has to say, we can't really influence that. What we need to influence is, okay, if you're saying we can, fine. But what we need to influence is the implementation, particularly on sanctions, benefit delays, and this implementation of universal credit, and get as targeted as possible on the whole kind of system stuff, rather than some of the policies that are right-wing conservative policies. When it comes to right-wing, it doesn't come more right-wing than Northern Ireland, um, uh, where we've actually... We had a huge influence on the recent um, sub-policy kind of set that came out um, where actually the bedroom tax was scrapped because of conversations with our um, CEO, who is incidentally an Ulster man also, and terrifying. Um, but, um, yeah, so I think we can't. We're seeing that in devolved governments. In interestingly, we're seeing huge influence in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Really, really exciting stuff happening, you know, um, but not so in Westminster yet. So I think we can, 
if we can get, build the right relationships and and speak together, you know, I think that's that's really important. Um, I, it's really difficult to to talk about what's a conservative policy, what's not. Um, I think we've just got to keep telling the story and keep having the conversations when we can. Um, obviously, campaigning as a charity is difficult, um, and was made in, interestingly more difficult. Um, but we just—I think it's about having key conversations and telling stories about what we're seeing on the ground because it's very difficult to argue against those. Um, but a great question, great question. They like it. Uh, one final question. Let's take it from. Sorry. Uh, yeah, four hands went up. Um, can we take this gentleman in red because he's wearing the right colour T-shirt for, for a question? For a question. For a question. Thanks. It's a question for both of you, really, both yourself and Martin. Um, as a former Trussell Trust Food Bank coordinator and addict in recovery, I was interested to see how you guys would both think about how we would best deal with addiction, the disease of addiction, uh, whether it should be really looked at more as a disability rather than just throwing on job seekers or universal credit and how we would best be looking to deal with that, really. Uh, very good question. He's looking to me. I, I agree with you. I mean, it's not something necessarily that I come across except for when speaking to the clients. Personally, I think, I think you're right. I think um, we need to treat it a lot differently than we are. Um, and I know certainly, I think um, we've got a couple of food banks that have seen incredible success um, in this whole area. Sheffield Essex Food Bank that's run out of um, St. Thomas, Philadelphia in the Hillsborough area. Just, as just, you walk in there and it's just, if you can go and visit, um, it's run by an ex, um, an ex drug lord. Um, he's met Jesus, completely, completely turned around. He just can't shut up about Jesus. He's great. Incredible. You met him, you, Chris Hardy, um, and uh, I think that's you know obviously we can treat it like that, but actually, just to come on to you know actually it's about introducing people to Jesus, and most of us got into food banks because of that, really, didn't we? If you run a food bank, so I think that's. Yeah. Yeah. So my final comment would be. Underlying all this issue of food poverty, there are, there are sort of hidden things that we have to address. First of all, the distinction between short-term and long-term, which we've mentioned. Secondly, life skills, lack of confidence, addiction, mental health issues that are often associated. So the trajectory of development, social supermarkets on the one hand, but associated projects, so food banks are linked with mental health issues, um, addiction recovery issues, financial services issues, uh, advocacy um, strategies, this is the way forward. This will provide more and more strategic help and addiction fits into that. But we have to make the link. Yeah. Folks, we have come to the end of our time. Thank you for being with us, for being on this uh, um, uh, uh, series of seminars. If you want to sign up to emails from Jubilee Plus, please go to Sheena over there. Uh, we monthly uh, e-news that will tell you what we're going on. Want to find out more about Trussell Trust, speak to to Matt Cameron. Trusha, our appreciation to Matt, and thanks for being with us. And we'll see you, see you at the, meet, the next meeting, whenever it is this evening, I guess, or some hub meeting or something. Thanks very much for coming and being in our life zone. <laughs>